am Sarah Kinsler. I'm Jason McKenzie. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Sarah and I have uh, classical uh, overtures that are yes. our names. and We've I will... repurposed them for our own use. Yes, and so when when Sarah calls me, I answer the phone such as this. Sarah Kensler, Sarah Kensler, Sarah Kensler. Yep, yep. Sorry, I was I was getting into it. I was dancing over here. Um, and when I answer the phone and Jasa is calling me, I am supposed to answer, but I fell down on my duties this morning, as she rightfully pointed out to me. <clears throat> Jasa McKenzie, Jasa McKenzie, Jasa McKenzie, Jasa McKenzie. Yes, I like my presence to be ominous and foreboding when it is announced. <laughs> I like mine to be clippy and and uh, staccato and. <laughs> well, yeah, and the next lines are like, Sarah Kensler omnipotent reign and Sarah Kensler, Sarah Kensler. <laughs> so it's yeah accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, do we have some news? Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So I had actually already posted about this on my personal Facebook. Um, but, but you know, there was this painter, um, his name, Gustav Klimt. Are we familiar? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I went to the, uh, the Klimt museum in Vienna once. Yeah. He's, um, he, he did some painting. Um, there's a, he has a piece in Ikea's collection, I believe. No way. No effing way. That's hilarious. What? Yes, he does. Yes, it's... um. Okay, I'm going to take the time to actually Ikea Gustav. I, I mean, like that's great. That's, I mean, sure. Collect all of Gustav's clipboard. It was just kind of random. Oh, yeah, no. It's the Bjorksta picture of the Virgin. Um, motif created by Gustav Klimt. <laughs> okay. So you can actually buy this. Uh, it is ready to hang. But but anyway, um, Gustav's, Klimt's works are always very pattern-based. And he even did some gold inlay, inlay on shiny. some of his pieces. Super shiny. Um, and just like lovers and embraces. And it's it's always like a very, I don't know, I always kind of describe his pieces as like really cozy um mm. however i do i did take a picture when i was at the museum of uh his depiction of death and it's Ooh. like death wrapped in a purple and blue patchwork quilt with like you know his kind of signature style of figures cowering before it it's really cool i can i that can include that in our post but you know I'm yeah just, that'd be cool like it's cozy scary skeleton death <laughs> it's, reaper it's man cozy death Cozy death, sure, mm-hmm. but also terrifying. Um, it's yeah. I mean that that also like makes sense too. Right. Um, Please proceed. So, this painting called "Portrait of a Lady," uh, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's a portrait of a woman. She, it's just um, maybe you know like from her waist up, um, she's wearing like this beautifully floral, almost transparent like wrap and her hair is in like a bouffant type style and her makeup is fabulous um (laughs) sorry that i'm i'm really admiring like the color that he chose for her cheeks and her lips because i've seen that color in like tarte's collection of makeup anyway i'm off it's off topic (laughs) um so uh so so let me let me just tell you the story so this uh this piece had been missing for about 23 years um (laughs) At a certain point in time, they found the, uh, and I mean they, like the people who work at this particular museum in Italy, um, had found the um, the frame of this piece on the, on the roof of the museum. So what they think happened was that somebody tried to go in from the roof and like, like hook it like they were fishing for art. And they like... It like hooked the piece and and it fell out of the frame and so they all they got was the frame and they just kind of like left it on the roof because who wants the frame anyway um so uh there had been like over the past 20 years there were a couple of times where people thought they found it but it turned out that they were it was a fake and um some people have you know said that they were the ones who stole it but that wasn't right either 
Um, and so finally in uh, December, this past December, a few gardeners who were working around the outside of the museum um, cleared away some ivy and they found this metal box and inside the metal box was the painting. Um, <laughs> like Surprise! Why, why was the painting there all this time? Who took it? Why was it just chilling outside the museum? How had nobody seen it in the past 20 years, honestly? Um, was it was outdoors, you're telling me. It was outdoors, yeah. It was like outdoors in a metal case. Oh, so it was pretty well preserved? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it looks okay in the images. So the image that's floating around now is like it's on a... um, it's on a pedestal and there are two people guarding it at all times and it's got like a velvet rope around it because I don't know, maybe the person's going to come back and try and steal it again. That would be a cool movie. Um, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, art is very exciting, everybody, especially when it gets stolen. So this picture is back. That's super cool. Um, I, I find it kind of weird that it was never like sold to like some private rich person or that it like never traveled overseas or like maybe it did maybe it traveled overseas and then made its way back and the person put it in a metal box to be like okay thanks for loaning us this painting you can have it back now perhaps this the sisterhood of the traveling lady painting and then it was this <laughs> forgotten in a box as we all will be mm-hmm. someday it was forgotten in a box <laughs> Dark Mackenzie. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's a. Uh, this is a great story. I always like when, when you know, art finds its home again. Hmm, happy ending. Mhm. Mhm. And just as a heads up, it has been verified as authentic um, by a team led by Claudia Kalina. She's an adjunct professor at um, University de Bologna. Sorry if I mispronounced that, guys. I try my best. Um, she's an adjunct professor in the uh, Department of Architecture, um, and she's a specialist in cultural heritage. So um, she led the team that authenticated the work, and that's super cool. And yay, it's back. It's back. Awesome. Portrait of a lady and ladies saving art in the art world. Snap. So, Sarah, as you may know, I visited an exhibition at Mia. What? That was titled, yep, for the first time <laughs> last December. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, uh-huh. And it was titled, Sarah, jump in here. Artists Respond, colon, American Art and the Vietnam War. Thank you for that. Uh, and I thought this was a really great exhibition. Um, I don't want to do an exhibition review, but more just kind of talk about some interesting little elements that were in it. Uh, And just a little kind of side note fun thing that I liked about it was that the title cards, uh, kind of the the, uh, didactics that introduce you to a room and kind of tell you they have a, a, a paragraph on what you're about to learn or what you're seeing in this gallery, uh, they were all stapled onto what looked like stapled onto the wall, like with a, with a, not a nail gun. What do I want to say? Staple gun? Staple gun. Why was, what? Why did that take me? <laughs> not a, not a gun with nails, <laughs> but a gun with staples. They were stapled to the wall by not a nail <laughs> Okay. You're the smartest. <laughs> All right. Wow, I'm actually blushing. Um, they were stapled on, so they were printed on like a thick cardstock, and then you know, like stapled to the wall, and you know, to to make it look like a bulletin, you know, some kind of poster, like protest poster or info poster or, I don't know, recruitment poster that you might have seen, you know, stapled to a light pole or some kind of bulletin board or something like that. So I thought that was a cool little touch. I like those kinds of uh, curatorial sprinklings. But one thing that stood out to me in this exhibition, was as you got maybe like three-fourths the way through the exhibition, um, you know, you're seeing 
a lot of artworks that were they were made at the time and by artists in America and you know so you saw a lot of um like protest posters you saw a lot of people like contemplating violence you saw a lot of you know kind of this like rebellious spirit like highly political criticism that kind of thing and when you got about three-fourths the way through there was uh, a bunch of pegs along a wall and then a podium where you could write on and it had these multicolored cards that said the art in this exhibition makes me feel dot 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 and you could write about you know how you felt and you know i saw a lot of oh i learned a lot more than i knew before oh i didn't realize this i didn't realize that uh, a lot of commentary on today like oh we still have so many of the same problems today you know um but i also saw a lot of criticism of oh this is totally just from the american perspective they're not talking about the vietnam perspective at all and you know just kind of like this is so you know just one way thinking and you know one way you know uh displaying mm -hmm. when you went into the exhibition the very first thing that you see the very first wall text which i think most people tend to read it says this is a show about american about the vietnam war from the american perspective that was made during the time of the Vietnam War by artists who were living in America. So it was very specific and it had like these three, four layers of like narrowing it down. Like, so when you went in, it wasn't saying that this was like all encompassing. It wasn't saying you're gonna see both sides. It was like, no, this is what this is. And it's, you know, really boiling it all down, which is a necessity because it, that would just be such a huge exhibition and so crazy. I don't even know how you would curate that if you were to like have like an exhibition this big mm -hmm. talking about both sides. I think you would need to dedicate like an entire museum to, to, that. to do it proper justice. Absolutely. This is not to say that like that approach will not ever and has not ever been done uh, poorly or, or not as, um, in, in broad strokes that were kind of um, not well thought out, I'm sure. I'm sure that this is not the first time that this type of exhibition has been launched. Right, and it's a curatorial necessity mm -hmm. to, you know, make all of these, like, you know, very specific, you know, um, disclaimers of what you're about to view because, um, you know, it's just kind of, you know, this is just kind of a bite-size view and you have to make these decisions in order to make a cohesive show. So that was just one thing that I noticed. And then um, as you went on, they had a, a gallery or two of contemporary artists who were uh, from the from Southeast Asia. Um, a lot of them were Hmong. And as we know, the Twin Cities has a lot of Hmong artists. And uh, it shows these contemporary artists, you know, um, and their and work that kind of relates to the subject today you know um their family history or you know how they view like their place in society politics etc and then when you went to the end of that part of the exhibition um there was another place where you could write on these cards these cards said before i saw the artworks by southeast asian artists I thought dot 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 and then gave you a space to write and then it said now that I've seen these artworks I think dot 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 and I kind of thought that you know this was a little prescriptive of the exhibition um, you know like I kind of felt like they went through this you know very obviously American centric uh, you know, three-fourths the exhibition, which it was supposed to be, and then, you know, gave, they're like, oh, people are going to complain, so, like, let's get them to write it out and put it on the wall, mm -hmm. and so they did. I mean, obviously, some of it was, you know, actual reflection, and some of it was very uplifting, but, like, you know, this gave people a chance to, like, write it down and put it up, 
And then when they went through, it was kind of like the uh, exhibition being like, see, we knew you were going to say that. (laughs) And we made you write it down so that you're like responsible for what you thought. And now we're going to make we're going to make you stop here and think again and tell us right out how you thought we we were being like you know ignorant and now how you realize that we weren't and like putting it back up on the wall <laughs> like i thought it was a little prescriptive and i thought it was like a little like i don't know like a little gotcha yeah i can see that so um just to explain uh the there were actually two exhibitions in that same space the first one was artists respond uh which was something that the smithsonian american uh museum of this is something that the smithsonian museum of american art actually put together and it had traveled from the smithsonian to the museum the to the minneapolis institute of art The second exhibition that you are referring to in that same space is called Artists Reflect Contemporary Views on the American War. And this is a companion exhibition that Mia actually put together of pieces in their permanent collection, um, drawings, textiles, video, blah, 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 made by artists from the Southeast Asian diaspora. Um, It included three Minnesota artists, Pao Hua Her, Teo Nguyen, and Sai Tao. And so that was actually something that Mia put together. Uh, I know that the show is still traveling. The artist respond part, not artist reflect part, is still traveling. And I don't know what the other institutions will do. Um, But I, just based on my knowledge of the exhibition at Mia, it seemed like this was a singular experience. Oh, wow. I'm so glad that I have you here and this knowledge. Um, I just kind of thought that the artists reflect uh, area was like a part of the exhibition. Uh, But just, you know, because the the titles were so close. So Yes. Yeah. Uh I just I just kind of thought that it was a part of the exhibition. And I was like, oh, because I I knew that it came from somewhere else. I was kind of like, oh, well, it's really like serendipitous that they picked these. Yes. Look at that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And again, um, I'm not the most. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's yeah. I'm so glad to have your knowledge here. In this instance, it was Mia taking uh, you know, a card from the traveling exhibitions deck and, and, you know, but playing it in their, uh, you know, their exhibition that paired along with this one as well. And, um, I, this element stood out to me because I have experienced it in other institutions that I've worked with, such as when I was working at the Rubin in New York. Um, they had a big wall uh, of these pegs where everybody could write down um, on these cards. Um, it said, my greatest fear is and my greatest hope is. And everybody could you know, write it down anonymously and put them either on, there was a side for fear and a side for hope. And there were so many cards. You could just, you know, go through them and just see that, you know, all these patterns of what's in the zeitgeist and what people are fearing right now. Some of them are personal and specific. A lot of them obviously had to do with greater world uh, concerns. And um, so, you know, I, I know that I, you know, kind of criticize this a little bit but I do think that these participatory elements are actually really good tools uh for exhibitions and it is you know in the case of reading these you know writings that are short and individual and anonymous you can see a lot of the the connections of um you know a lot of people were talking about the political turmoil that we have in the US and the world today and you know you can you know it's kind of uh i don't know like awareness building or maybe you have a sense of like you know community and camaraderie stepping back and kind of seeing these larger themes that you know you share with you know all these other people who have visited the exhibition mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on the presentation of this particular type of exhibition. Um, an exhibition that examines a fraught moment in history. Um, one that examines the history of 
the audience that it'll be presenting to. Um, I, I'm kind of wondering, like, was this exhibition, this this revisiting of how artists responded to the Vietnam War in America, do you feel like it was necessary? Wow. Uh, I mean, that's a very subjective yeah, question. Yeah. How are you defining necessary? Well, you know, you had kind of talked about, I think, I think your point in the beginning is extremely valid about how, you know, there were some issues with the fact that it only presented an American side of the, the war. I don't think that's an issue. I just want to stipulate. Oh. I don't think that's an issue. I think like people thought it was an issue because I don't think that they understood that, you know, the show had all these stipulations of this is about America by artists in America during that time from the American perspective. Um, I'm just, I, I think that a, an exhibition that showed both sides um, would be amazing both sides in the same show would be amazing. I think it would be a very grand project to take on. I'm just saying that I understand why, you know, the, uh, you know, whoever the original curators of the show are, you know, uh, you know, dwindled it down to this level and maybe not dwindle, but, you know, like specified it uh, because this is such a big topic. And, you know, you, you have to kind of take it in a bite-sized chunk to be able to do something so huge justice. And I do think that people tend to criticize it because, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they, they want to see. I, I love people's natural curiosity and uh, this trend towards inclusion that they want to see both sides and they want both sides of history told awesome keep going with that. Please demand it everywhere. Um, however, I just, I just understand the need to be specific. And also, um, I don't think that these artists, just because they were, you know, a lot of them were Americans and practicing um, in America at the time, just because they are American or, you know, uh, aren't, talking about both sides, but are talking about their experience and the time and place that they were, I don't think that's invalid. I still think that these artworks are still really valid just to show their experience in the contemporary moment that they were experiencing. Okay. So, I mean, let's, let's kind of peel away the, um, the logistical concerns of, you know, approaching an issue that is this vast and has so many aspects to it as it relates to showing an exhibition. Um, is there is there anything that you would have done in the exhibition from the Smithsonian? So not we're not counting the one that Mia put on in it as a companion. Um, is there anything that you would have done in the exhibition from the Smithsonian to change it in any way or maybe change the signage to set expectations better or present it differently? Um, you mean like drive in the point that it had been or make it more obvious that it was from this very specific perspective? I I think so, because it seems to be that's what like, you know, like everything about this show said American perspective, these American artists, like, and, and yet still there was this feedback of, well, you're not showing both sides. And like, that's, that's what the the show was, was one sided in that way. Um, and so if we're trying to present, um, if you're trying to be upfront about the fact that you're only presenting one side, well, is there a way to be honest, I, I think that it, you know, the, the viewer has some responsibility here. Like obviously the curators and the institution and everything have a great amount of responsibility, but really there's, there's only so much you can do. Um, before you're interrupting the art and you're not letting the art tell its story. Um, if you, you know, you, you really can't shove things mm-hmm. down the audience's throat and you can't overwhelm them with information. Um, you'll take away from the art having its room to tell its story. You'll take away from people being able to, uh, you know, interpret things as they will. And, you know, there's just... There's, you know, as, as a visitor, you're kind of, 
you know, obviously you can, and I sometimes do this, walk into a show without reading anything at first and just kind of absorb and just mm-hmm. see what I get out of it. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, exhibitions make us think. They make us, you know, experience pieces. You know, it's, if you really want to be an informed visitor and, you know, critique, um, you know, I we're kind of in this age where blind critiquing and uninformed critiquing like runs rampant, but you know, there is some, you know, responsibility like on the side of the viewer, like the, the institution and the curators can only go so far in setting, you know, setting up their point of view mm-hmm. before, you know, they're crossing a line into, you know, like the curating and the, you know, institutional setup being louder than the art. And that is absolutely something that nobody wants. And so, um, yeah, you know, I don't know if there's really a way to do it better. I kind of feel like there's not a need to, I don't know, there's, there's not a need to make it louder or make it more obvious because I feel like they were using very intrinsic tools to kind of set the scene for the visitor and, you know, anything more would just kind of be overpowering. So I just, you know, think that if you want to be an informed visitor, then you've got to do a little work on your part as well. This is such a good conversation. Um, I always love picking your brain about curatorial aspects. Well, like do this. you have Because I'm opinion? so involved with like the research and yes, I actually have an Okay, opinion. please. No, I, I really um, want to hear that. And so, you, you know, like just to clarify, I'm, I'm much more on the side of um, like, I, I do consider curatorial logistics and I also do consider um, you don't want to assume that people know nothing, but you also want to give them your visitors um, but you also want to give them enough knowledge ahead of time, mm-hmm. just in case. Um, I thought would have what really would have made this show poignant would have been to, in the hanging of the exhibition, hang intermittently an American piece next to a piece of uh, from an artist of Southeast Asian descent. Um, and I, I'm very much an advocate for conversations between works of art. Um, I know that this has come up in a couple of times where we've talked about the way an exhibition is hung. And, and what I mean is like, literally when you as the visitor are looking between these two works, what are they saying? Are they contradicting each other? Are they agreeing what's going on? And I think that that's something that, that if any visitor can pick up on without needing to have their hand held, without needing to read a lot of text, like capitalizing on the visual nature of exhibitions like this could really help, um, could really help people be, uh, involved at their own pace and at their own level um, without trying to be too prescriptive or too free with um, information or lack of thereof. So I I wish, and I know that there was not the freedom in this particular instance to do this tor- sort of thing, but I really would have loved to see each of the American pieces hung right next to a piece um, from a Southeast Asian artist. I think that would have been very powerful. However, I think that you've just created an entirely different show. A show that I want to see and a show that I think is really, (laughs) but I do think that this is an entirely different show. Perhaps what, like, instead of... um, instead of uh, changing to a new show completely, something, you know, just to kind of, uh, you know, make, give the audience what they want, or, you know, kind of like, oh, if they, you know, want to be, like, responsible for their own education, you know, after seeing the show, they're so inspired to, you know, go do more, is, you know, having, you know, maybe at the, that huge desk outside the exhibition, if they come back around, having information. Um, So I went, I went to this exhibition with my partner who has traveled Vietnam extensively and went to the Vietnamese uh, museum on the American war there. It's called the American war, not the Vietnam war. And so mm-hmm. she had, she had seen already everything from the Vietnamese uh, standpoint. And so maybe if, if um, there is just a little bit of information, maybe asking that museum uh, for some pamphlets uh, in English that could be displayed or just a little sign that says want more information Uh, check out you know these websites of these museums Um, maybe 
they could have some exhibition catalogs of some American war exhibitions that have been done, you know, that people could browse through or purchase or something, you know, because then you're, you're, you're kind of giving it into the viewer's hands to be like, you know, we understand Mm -hmm. that this was from this very specific perspective. And we understand that you have, you know, this urge to know both sides. Well, you know, we can't do that in the, you know, just the limits that we're dealing with. But here are some resources where then you can go on and enrich your experience Mm -hmm. that way. Yeah, for sure. I, gosh, I'm having so many more thoughts as we're talking about this, but we have talked at length (laughs) about this and there's not going to be any more time for anything else in this podcast episode. (laughs) Well, we talked a lot about participatory elements um, here in this discussion. And I kind of feel like talking and hearing about that some more. Well, you are in luck. Uh, because up next is an interview with artist Jess Hirsch. Uh, she is a participatory sculptor and craftsperson. Um, I I first was introduced to her by Teresa Audette, who we interviewed many moons ago. Um, and, and who I ran and... into at the Slater Kinney concert. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Um, Come on, Teresa. Artists are everywhere, especially at Slater Kinney concerts. I don't even <laughs> yep. know who that is. <gasps> I don't know who that is. <laughs> Are you okay? I'm speechless. Really? You didn't know that I didn't know who Slater Kenny was? Um, well, uh, okay. Well, you know, this will be the last day you'll be able to say that. Please go on. Oh, God. Okay. Jace is going to give me homework. So. Uh, for a rad girl <sighs> rock band, it's the best right. kind of homework in the world. I'm also wearing okay. their band t-shirt as we speak. Are you really? <laughs> yeah. No, I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so I, I was introduced to Jess by Teresa Audette because Jess owns and operates the Women's Wood Shop. Uh, it's based in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. And it's been going for about three years now. And Jess has uh, training in woodworking and fine arts and sculpting practices. And so a big part of her process, as I discovered in our conversation, was that she really pushes the element of participation from her viewers. So I love that all of this is kind of coming around in, in, a, in a cycle of relatedness. Yes. And uh, I'm really excited to to hear more straight from the artist's mouth. Uh, shall we hit it? Let's let's hit it. Right now. Right now. So I am here with Jess Hirsch. Jess is a participatory sculptor and craftsperson, living and working in the Twin Cities. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me in the Hosmer Library. Is that what this is called? Mm -hmm. Hosmer Library in South Minneapolis. What a lovely space. Mm -hmm. And we are meeting just after the snowpocalypse of 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Just welcome. Thanks for having me. So um, would you please do me a favor and tell me a little bit about your background and your practice? Sure. I grew up in Minnesota, rural Minnesota, about an hour north of here. And in a small town, I immediately left uh, as soon as I turned 18 and headed to Portland, Oregon, which is sort of the mecca for participatory sculpture. Uh, There I studied drawing and took one sculpture class and fell in love with it, in particular woodworking. Hung out in Portland for another three years after graduating going to the PSU Monday Night Lecture Series, which is a social practice lecture that's free to the public. And that's kind of where I got my second schooling. And I decided to professionalize and move back to Minnesota to go to the U of M and get my MFA in sculpture. During that time, I experienced a undiagnosable stomach ailment and was really failed by the Western medicine world and I started getting into natural medicine and that was really a time that I shifted my art practice to kind of understand how the natural medicine world works and 
change the aesthetics that are presented by natural medicine because the new age aesthetic can be a little off-putting. So I wanted to understand it and make it more accessible to people. And this was also at a time when we didn't have public health care for you know, universal Obamacare. Uh, so I wanted to teach other artists who were also uninsured how to take care of their health in a, in a new way. So that was the beginning of making um, art that deals with the healing world. And so how does incorporating natural medicine and healing into your work change your output or your aesthetics? I think that I see myself as like a processor of information. So I do a lot of research. At the U, I took all the classes I could from the Center for Spirituality and Healing. And then projects would emerge from that information. And for me, a lot of the time it has to do with simplicity, inviting the public to do a simple action like eating or bathing or drinking tea or walking. Um, and having those common experiences as a platform to experience the healing world. Is it, and is that what it means when you say participatory sculpture? Yeah, I create an experience for people, um, but I always have to have a physical object that holds the experience because I'm such a maker and visual person. Um, that element's really important to me. So like, what types of projects have you done where people participated? So my MFA thesis show, I had a dumpster hot tub that had a simulation of the Blue Lagoon's water in Iceland. And people came and they actually bathed in this simulation of water. And the Blue Lagoon is supposed to have healing effects for all kinds of different skin ailments, arthritis, many things. So people actually signed up and um, got into my simulation. Was there, that was the most full-body participation I've had. But so that was, tell me a little bit more about that project, because I can't, dumpster hot tub? Yes. That's amazing. Um, so I bought a small dumpster, and then I lined it with, uh, I made a cedar Japanese-style bath inside of it, and then connected a, it's called a chofu heater. So it's a wood-burning stove that can circulate water around the barrel of the burns, um, for heat and so it generated heat and I had this like cozy uh, dumpster hot tub it is what it sounds like uh, and people could sign up and get it how long did they stay in the hot tub and did you did you ask anything of them to to think about something or to to approach the experience in a specific way they stayed for up to an hour everyone had this sort of chunk of time, so it was up to their discretion how long they stayed in. I didn't really preface it with much information because for me, it's not necessarily about collecting data, but rather like posing the question to the participant and letting them come up with their own answer. I just want people to reconsider how they think about their health and where those resources are for healing, and it's less about shaping what their experience is. I want the, the piece itself to do the work for me and not give too much information. Mm-hmm. In looking on your website, you have a piece that you did for a women's shelter. Mm-hmm. And I'm forgetting what it's called The now. Cultivation Sanctuary. Cultivation Sanctuary. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah. So the shelter I worked with my mom had actually been volunteering at for a number of years and still does. For them, I I really wanted to work with the community to bring them uh, something that they needed, and what they needed was another space that was shared but was also private. So when you're at a shelter, you only have your bedroom, and it's shared with your whole family, so there's no no, um, kind of quiet areas. And then the shared space is like the living room or outdoors. Um, but being in rural Minnesota, the mosquitoes are pretty bad. Um, I wanted to create a space for them that uh, was secluded where they could spend time to kind of uh, do introspective work, which is necessary in a transition like that. So with the, 
the dodecahedron we built. Um, it's a 12-sided form, and it's coming from sacred geometry. It's the form for the spiritual world. And um, it the space itself doubles as a meditation space and also as a gardening space. So um, it's located near a field where people can work with veggies and plants and flowers, or they can just go in there and read books on meditation or different things from the healing world. Um, and there it was really the beginning of women's woodshop um, because I trained a 12-year-old how to use power tools, and I saw her personal growth just sky- skyrocket. To, it was incredible to see how much confidence was built in just a month. And it was really there that I understood how much education is going to build a person up more than doing a participatory sculpture piece for a day. So after working with um, this young woman and seeing her skills built, she actually built a playground on the backside of the dodecahedron. And she designed it herself and cut it out herself. And we like anchored some posts for her and then she built it. And that was when I decided that Women's Woodshop would be uh, the next step in, in supporting people and helping to grow confidence in um, the women and non-binary community. But that was about three years prior to actually starting the woodshop. The impetus to start the woodshop was um, I was moving out of my mentor studio. I had a 300-pound lathe, and I knew that was going to fit in my basement studio. And then Trump got elected, and it was sort of this moment where I was like, you know what, we're just going to start. I'll figure it out as I go. And I rented a storefront that was on my way home from the studio. Um, It was only two miles from my house, and I brought all my tools and decided to share them with people and start offering classes. So what does the woman's wood shop look like today? Yeah, it's two rooms, a power tools room and a hand tools room. Everything is on wheels because it's a very small space. So people, um, depending on the class, are gonna see it in variations. Typically we have six to 10 classes per month. We have about 18 instructors. Some people travel from across the country to teach. Uh, Rose Holdorf is coming in from Corvallis, Oregon to teach four classes for the month of February. Amy Umbel comes from Pennsylvania to teach at least once a year. Yeah, so we have a really awesome array of people coming in. Our classes are kind of grouped into three segments, um, craft, so spoon carving, bowl turning, birch bark weaving, uh, black ash basket weaving, then fine furniture with tables, stool building, uh, boxes, and then our other section is our home tools and home repairs courses. They're mostly taught by Aaron Melzer, who's a like badass union carpenter. And that's everything from trim to repairing an old floor, hardwood floors, installing shiplap ceilings, remodeling your bathroom, kind of the gamut of what we can do. And we're still young. It's going to be three years in February, and we're becoming a nonprofit this year. Um, so I'm very excited about the shift because it's been very DIY and a ton of work um, over the mm-hmm. last couple of years. Have you still created pieces in addition to running the women's woodshop? Yeah, I'd say my focus has been diverted quite, quite a bit. And this past year has been more of a revisiting old projects and um, remaking them for other institutions like the Energetic Flower Stand in Moscow and then Prescription Gardens went in that rack this spring and then the Swedish Institute show was again emotional playing. So I haven't been building as much new work, um, but my show coming up at uh, Second Shift Studios will be brand new work first time working with video, which I'm excited about and very um, anxious about uh, because it feels new and I'm very critical, Um, but it will be something different. What are the logistics of of being in a women's woodshop class? Is there like a contact number or a website that you can go to to see prices and availability? Yeah, womenswoodshop.com is how we handle all registration. Um, 
so folks can sign up for classes there. If somebody needs a scholarship, they can email us at womenswoodshop at gmail.com and just say how much they can afford for a class and we will cover the rest out of our scholarship fund. Um, our classes for January and February are live and a few for March are live, but more will be coming up soon. Do you have to be a woman to be involved in the classes? No, um, we're actually a pretty inclusive space and we're very excited. We're having our first male instructor co-teaching um, a ladder building class with Rose Holdorf. Um, but our classes are typically for women and non-binary makers or it will say all gender, no gender. So um, all kinds of people are invited and it's very, very flexible. Okay, very mm -hmm. good. And your show at Second Shift is coming up mm -hmm. soon. What are the dates for that? So January 31st will be the opening reception at Second Shift Studios. And then I will be hosting a tea time on uh, the Saturday and Sunday following, and then another viewing on Monday. So it will be a sort of a four-day weekend event. Okay. Is it staying up past that, or is it just the four days? It's just the four days. Yeah, we'll always have someone there hosting, so it will be a little bit more involved than a typical viewing. Mm -hmm. And that space is in St. Paul? Yep, on Payne Street. Okay. If people wanted to find out more about your work or what's coming up next, where would they find you online? So at JessHirsch.com. Hopefully I will update my website very soon. Um, that has all my previous work. And then information about uh, the Second Shift show is on Facebook. And the show is called Landscape with a uh, E hidden in between two parentheses. So it's Landscape. Thank you so much for going into great detail about your practice. I, I loved that I knew very little about what you did. And I really appreciate the time that you've taken to explain to me about your your background and your history with natural medicines and, and how that kind of relate into the pieces that you create. So thank you. Thank you for joining us, Soda listeners. You can find our show notes and other information about us on our website at sodapodcast.blog. Please email us with any feedback or to alert us of any arts events coming up at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at stateoftheartspod or search for Soda Podcast. You can find episodes of State of the Arts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. We have a Patreon. There's a donation tab on our website. Donating to the Patreon will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast. And as always, our music is provided by The Von Tramps. Yeah, let's uh, let's say hello to the people. Let's um, let's make sure that Sarah has the uh, the articles up, and uh, she does. Yeah, oh, that's she so super great. does. I love it when Sarah does that. <laughs> Sarah's just Sarah's on yeah. it. Sarah's mostly on it, I and think. around yeah. it, and all up in it. Okay, so like, are there two sides of my personality? Like Sarah, capital S Sarah, who's on the stuff all the time and it like has everything together what's the name of the person for when my stuff is not together no it's just also sarah like <laughs> like lowercase <S. laughs> no, no 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 they're both uppercase sarah so i would say that like uh maybe you're like a jekyll and hyde kind of situation where you're both the same person but just the like they come out at different times. You know what I mean? Oh. Mm -hmm. Not in like an evil way. Not like one is good and one is evil, but just kind of like, you know, when we worked together and we didn't hang out so, so much, I like only saw the, uh, like everything is together, Sarah. But then as our uh, friendship blossomed, you became more human. And... <laughs> Less perfect, more human. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like I was kind of intimidated by you at first because you were like this fabulous phoenix hair woman with your stationery and things. That was so good. And my stationery. Oh, yeah. And then I was like, oh, she's a person just like me. Wow. (laughs) She's a person just like me. (laughs) Well, no one one really wants to spend time with that person that's like perfect all the time. Oh, no. No, I, I guess not. I mean, although sometimes I kind of wish that there were someone like super, super knowledgeable about life and everything who would just tell me what to do if I could just follow that prescribed um path then like everything I wanted would just fall into place I kind of feel like we all want that oh so it's not just me okay that's good that's cool yeah no I think we're all just like where is the adulting book where Where is the adulting and I know that there's there's been books that came out that were like how to adults and they're just capitalizing on the use of the word adult as a verb now that's a thing i do enjoy it i like you know mixing up language and you know i'm I, I like on one hand i'm kind of like my mom was an english teacher and still to this day as we know uh from the comments that i get from her on the podcast that i still get corrected and things like that to this day so like on one hand i really want to like correct people but then on the other hand i'm like no i like this rebellious adulting <laughs> and queering <laughs> and you know just like go with it and uh I, yeah no I, I i am generally behind turning words that have only been nouns in the past into verbs like i think that's a really fun thing to do totally like, um, I'm looking at an instant pot right now on this table. Like mm-hmm. I could say instead of cooking, I was instant potting. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, TM. <laughs> my, uh, one of my friends and I were, he mentioned, he's like, yeah, you know, and that was lit. And I was like, you know, I recently heard on another podcast that, <laughs> uh, the kids are no longer using lit, but now they say scorched. Like that's Scorched, it's like a step further. So then we were joking, like, oh, we should, you know, we should like escalate that. What next? Like, that's so ash, man. That is ash. (laughs) Like, like, what if it goes like more? Like, that is so, like, you know, like nuclear. That's so nuclear holocaust bra. And then we we came up with the word uh, split as in atoms. So we have jumped. Oh, that's so split. We had jumped five steps into the future of the evolution because, oh yeah, because before lit it was, that's fire and things like that. So we've, we've jumped all these steps. And so now we are ahead of the kids, uh, (laughs) by, by about, uh, I don't know, uh, like five, five, uh, language morphs. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, like every two split. to three years, probably. So that you're, is you're about so 10 years ahead. Yeah. So, so split. Yeah. So mm-hmm. split. It's mm-hmm. so split to be that far ahead. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks, on Soda. <laughs> That's split. Redefining language, one podcast at a time. <laughs> yes. Uh, should we tell the fine people about the podcast and us and art and say hello and stuff? Oh, yeah, sure. Hi.